0: Four cops come barreling around the corner of the hallway. I freeze. The female officer among them approaches me and asks clinically for my version of the night's events. He need me in the ribs, I begin, trying to sound innocent, but my already deep voice is thick with anger and opioids, not the best quality for a wannabe damsel in distress. Also, I don't feel very high, and I'm pissed about it. The officer isn't really listening, and it's soon obvious to me that it doesn't matter what I say. I'm going to jail. I turn my head and see the other three officers down the hall talking with my husband. They're taking pictures of his neck and hands and writing things down. He holds up the knife I pulled. It's a large bread knife with a serrated blade and snubbed point. Whatever. It wouldn't have done the job anyway. Moments later, I'm handcuffed. The handcuffs are tight and cold around my wrists. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against... Yeah, yeah, Law & Order's my favorite show. I know the fucking drill, I say. The Valium is starting to kick in, and it's making me mouthy. I'm put in the back of a cop car. The seat is hard plastic. They make them like that for easy cleanup in case arrestees puke, bleed, or shit themselves. I've never been in the back of a cop car. My bony ass is chafing on the rigid seat. My hands are cuffed so tightly that I can't lean back, so I'm pitched forward. I stare into the glass divider, and then I start crying hysterically. This is bullshit! I scream to the cops, tears streaming. Tell my partner the cop in the front says mechanically. I go silent and then decide to change my approach. Well, perhaps I was just jousting, I say trying to break him with humor. I am a professional comedian, after all. Maybe if I can get a laugh out of this guy, we can all forget about this and go home. Hello? I tap on the glass with my forehead. He ignores me. I switch tactics yet again. Fucking shit! I can't believe this is happening! I'm a nice Jewish girl from Beverly Hills! I graduated magna cum laude! I shake my head violently. I'm not a bad wife, I swear! I'm not crazy! I'm not a fucking criminal! and then my words are just swallowed up by sobbing. They take me to jail. It's all a bit fuzzy because of the oxy and Valium. It's surprisingly quiet in the West Hollywood police station that night. It's Christmas. It looks like only assholes like me get arrested on Christmas.
1: Hey there Recovery Nation, producer John here. In this week's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted talks with author and comedian Amy Dresner about honesty, feelings, and writing her addiction memoir. Amy's book, My Fair Junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean, is out now. Stay tuned.
2: the arts, actors, musicians, and comics, they've been around for a thousand years when you trace it back. Whether people are watching actors, actresses on the stage, listening to great musicians, or hilariously laughing at the funny comedy, this has been part of our culture and lives. We all relate to it, just like we relate to the fallen heroes of the arts, whether it be Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Whitney Houston, John Belushi, Robin Williams, Human tragedies due to addictions and inner struggles. We might cry, wish that that person had gotten help, or maybe even some of us didn't really even care at all and just went on with our lives. I mean, so often I've heard that the inner struggles and experiences in life is where they all drew their art from, especially like comedians, that they've used humor to poke fun of their own inner struggles and almost used it in a therapeutic way. I mean, the legendary psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud once quoted as saying, comedians often tell jokes as a kind of relief system from their own anxiety. And actually, I've talked to some comedians who had social anxiety and panic disorder and still did stand-up routines. So is it possible to learn something from these tragic artists' lives? Is it possible to gain wisdom from these tragedies and maybe use it to direct our lives a little bit better? I would think so. And maybe we could learn even more from a Silver Spoon artist slash comedian who appeared to be walking in those very same footsteps on her way to death, but took a detour near the end. A detour that was not easy. A detour of addiction to recovery. A detour of changing life purpose. A detour of changing her comic journey. What could we learn from her? All right. Well, um, I want to welcome Amy Dresner to the show. Uh, We are so blessed to have her. She's an amazing woman, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her addiction to recovery story, but she's also going to talk about a lot of other things that I think are important to recovery. So um, without further ado, the one and only Amy Dresner, and I'm not going to ask you to do any stand up right now either.
0: Thank you. I haven't done stand up for seven years. I mean, part of that never dies. I'm always sort of like doing corny jokes, but in bad voices, but you know, yeah, I don't do stand up anymore. Thank you. Thank you for not asking.
2: Well, um, you know, you have a book that just came out. And I know that you're going to be, I think it's a speaker at the She Recovers and All Female 3-Day Recovery event, which I've heard a lot of good things about. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. They did one in New
0: York. that was huge. They just did one in San Francisco, and they contacted me to be um, a speaker for the LA September event. So I'm really excited, and
2: uh, yeah, it feels good. So if there's someone, uh, a woman in recovery that wants to go down, is there places she needs to go to on the web to find out about it and
0: yeah um i think i sent you
2: that link it's like uh
0: they just go to sherecovers.co slash la event
2: okay
0: la event and um they're already sold i think a third of the tickets oh wow and the thing is six months away I have six months to freak out about what I'm going to wear and what I'm going to say. Of course, like I used to, I like to dress like a sort of like homeless, you know, bassist from Reseda from the seventies. And they want me to speak at the gala, which is going to be like cocktail attire. I'm like, no, (laughs) oh God. I'm like, do I have to wear a dress? They're like, well, you know, I'm like, ah, I might wear like a cool jumpsuit, like, you know, but yeah. It's like my nightmare. I'm like, oh, cool, six months of anxiety while well, I figure out what I'm going to say and where. Fantastic. Great. Thank you. Okay. You know, what you know how
1: we
2: eliminate. You know what they say, fake it till you make it, you know? Of course. So what could um, somebody going down for um, the she Recoveries event, What what will they get from that? I mean – if you could just kind of outline um, there's the a bunch of speakers.
0: I mean, Cheryl Strayed who wrote Wild. There's a bunch of speakers that I should probably know like that I don't. I think there's going to be I've never done the event. I mean, um there's going to be yoga. It's a 3-day all women sort of event and um you know, I don't I wish I prepared more for that. I mean, um I can look on the website, but yeah, I'm like the least important person to be honest. Like everyone else is like you know, much more important. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, these events have done, there's going to be vendors, there's going to be food. It's like, it's like going to be about bonding and letting go of shame and women coming together and recovery from everything, whether it's like PTSD or an eating disorder or addiction, or it's going to be, it's, it's much broader than their other ones. Okay.
2: So well, that sounds like a great event for any woman. A
0: typical alcoholic. I'm like, I just know about my part. <laughs> <laughs> right, you're like, tell us about the event. I was like, uh
2: I should have said, tell us about you. <laughs> <laughs> <That far. laughs> well, definitely we'll plug it for sure. Um, website yeah, is- as well.
0: Yeah. My book is like my biggest accomplishment so far, and um I'm really proud of it. It came out in September in Hardback by hachette and uh there's an audio version also that I narrated and the paperback comes out in September. And um I just wrote like the rawest memoir that I could write. I mean, really embarrassing stuff because I figure if you're trying to look good in an addiction memoir, you're not being honest enough. <laughs> so you know, there was definitely stuff where I was like, Oh god, no one's gonna ever date me again if I write this. But like I was like, hey. This book is to help people and make people feel less alone and less ashamed and um, help, other, help non-addicts understand the way that we think and the way our biology is. And it seems to have been successful in both those. People are just like, wow, I've never read a book that honest. And it's dark, but it's funny. And other people are like, thank you. I understand my brother's addiction better now and I have more compassion. And I'm like, woo.
2: Excellent. So maybe we'll jump in right there. Um, Yeah, if you want to tell us a little bit, maybe more about the book, maybe your addiction to recovery story, and then uh, we'll jump into some other questions as well. Sure. Um, Where's a good place to start? Yeah. um,
0: The book is called My Fair Junkie, a memoir of getting dirty and staying clean. And it opens with uh, – me pulling a knife on my now ex-husband while I was high on oxycontin and being arrested for felony domestic violence with a deadly weapon and going to jail on Christmas of 2011, and uh, I lost everything, um, my sanity, my sobriety, my marriage. Uh, I tried to kill myself a couple times. I ended up back in rehab for probably the fifth or sixth time. You know, still struggled. Got kicked out of rehab. Went to a couple sober livings and finally just clicked. I've had time before. I'm one of these people who's been in and out of the program for like 20 years and I've had big chunks of sobriety and then relapsed again. Um, This sobriety feels different. Um, So I basically had to do community labor, which is like sweeping the streets. You know what I mean? So it was like me and like 40 Mexican guys, like, what you here for, Weta? I'm here for a DUI. What you here for, huh? Skinny Jew? Skinny white girl? And I was like, um, I'm here for felony domestic violence with a deadly weapon. They're like, oh, my God. You know, it's like, so I had, like, more time than anyone else. I was one of the few people there for assault. It was really humbling. And sweeping the streets for eight hours in the sun is exhausting, too. Um, no one would talk to us. It was very, very humbling. And I also had to do a year of anger management. And the thing got dropped down on misdemeanor, and then the charges got dismissed. But um, I was in sober living for about two and a half years at that time trying to just freelance writing, babysitting, just doing tiny little jobs, which was a huge difference from growing up with a lot of money and, you know, a trust fund. And I was on medical disability. I mean, it was just that, like I lost everything was like, you know, completely broke I needed help from my family, needed help from friends. Um, it was, uh, it was exactly what I needed. Hmm. And I, I did realize it about midway through, you know, at first I was feeling really sorry for myself. And then all of a sudden I, uh, I went, wait a second, you know, this is, this could be the best thing that ever happened to you. So, or it can be the worst thing that ever happened to you and it's your decision. So I kind of embraced it and learned the lessons and decided to take responsibility for my life and the consequences
2: and just turned it all around. So what was different about this last part in terms of your sobriety? Because I know, so I don't even know if you know much about my background, but I've been an alcohol and drug counselor for like 20-some years. So oh, I'm my short, God, wow. And I've worked in all the different facets from residential treatment to outpatient, intensive outpatient, um, aota, counseling, mental health, children, kids, families, that sort of thing. So I'm doing, I'm actually a consultant now at a residential treatment center, and I've seen like This place kind of gets like the hardest core type individuals Uh with like no insurance, no money, multiple anxiety, depression, and multiple- Which is
0: very classic, the comorbidity of mental illness or mood disorder with addiction. I have that as well.
2: Yeah. And so it's a lot of guys and gals that are coming through the program, they've gone through the program two or three times over a several year period of time. And so I become more and more curious- about what actually makes a difference for people because I know they're, not, they're different coming through the second time and they're also different coming through the third time, although maybe the general public will look at them and say, well, they really haven't learned their lesson, Tad. So if someone had knocked on death's doorstop and was able to walk away, wouldn't they be committed to never going back? Wouldn't they be so committed to never relapsing again knowing what they know. All too often I hear this from family members with people in addiction treatment. The family members almost see substance abuse treatment as the forever savior. They don't quite realize, and who can blame them, that recovery is a process that changes over time. And even though we might say the person with three months clean is definitely more likely to relapse than a person with three years clean, sometimes that isn't even the case. You see, the mind of relapse, if left to its own devices, can easily begin to fool the best of them, maybe even make you think you have it all figured out, and that your job is only to help others, and maybe even make for a better rock bottom.
0: I sobriety before. That was the whole thing, was um, that I'd had three and a half years. I'd had seven years without the program. I'd had time. I'd secretaryed me. I had sponsees, you know, and I still, you know, had relapsed. And that was the difficult thing. It's like not like I never got it. I had it for
2: years. So, and then, so maybe talk a little bit about that because I know some of our listeners are, are curious about this. And, and I'm generally like kind of curious about it is when you put together a period of sober time and then fall back into it. And you've done oh, it a few times. Were, oh, but, and so, like maybe you, if you could share us share at least your perspective, kind of your insight on how it happened for you, and how did you? I think. mean, I, God,
0: it's like okay. So first of all, a little bit about, about my background. Um, I didn't drink until I was nineteen. I didn't uh, I didn't start doing meth until I was twenty four. Meth was the drug, my drug of choice that really brought me down. And, you know, took me down the rabbit hole and was the first drug that I felt that click that people talk about where it's like, oh, this is I feel normal. Like this makes me feel like I can be on the planet and norm and feel normal. Um, and I struggled with meth addiction for, oh, God, I don't know, a year and a half, two years. And it gave me epilepsy, which is really and I still have epilepsy to this day from it. So um, that's something I have to manage. Um, I got years of sobriety i relapsed i think on marijuana then i was like you know it was the thing of like oh well, i can drink i'm not i'm just a drug addict i'm not an alcoholic it'll be fine and then i was like i can do coke cuz coke's not meth and um and then all of a sudden you know i'm back in rehab again and then i get out and you know i'm shooting cocaine and i mean it just it progressed and progressed and progressed um I – for me, a big, big shift was taking responsibility for myself and becoming financially independent. Growing up uh, with money and a trust fund and then marrying a rich guy, I just – I wanted the world to take care of me. I wanted the world to fix me. I didn't know how to fix myself. I thought I was broken. My, I was different. My feelings were too big. No one understood. You know, I suffer from a lot of depression. I've been 5150 four different times. I tried to kill myself three different times. So, you know, there were times when I just was like, I didn't, you know, times that I thought the relapse would be different. And there was also times when I knew it wouldn't, and I didn't care, which is really terrifying You know, yeah. Um, the last relapse was a result of being put on Oxycontin for an an injury. And um, I was just in a, you know, marriage that was crumbling. And as soon as I thought it wouldn't be a problem because I never liked opiates. And as soon as that stuff hit me and that sort of veil went up between me and the world and I felt that like, oh, God, I don't care about anything. Like I feel numb and like I feel, you know, that shield goes up where you feel insulated from the world and your feelings and what anyone thinks about you. And then it just became sort of, I started to abuse it immediately. And now I know that with my genetics, like that's everything, you know, I drink three yerba mates. I have a, you know, a coffee with, you know, five extra shots. I mean, you know what I mean? like that's, that's kind of my thing, you know, it's just like extremism. Um, but, uh, For me, I had to lose everything. I had to lose everything to really get that shift. And I hope that other people don't. I don't think you have to lose everything to get that shift.
2: Yeah, that's what I I, kind of wonder about that because I've met some people on both sides of the fence. Most of the people have to lose everything and almost like kind of talk about this kind of similar story. But there's other people that haven't had to lose everything and they've sort of figured it out along the way. And then just working with people, I'm just like, what like what is the magic medicine in terms of like helping people kind of understand and not rationalize it all out or move over to a different drug to sort of yeah. like think like, hey, I can get away with this. I, I right. I'm not addicted to cocaine, I was addicted to meth, or right. I was addicted to painkillers, and now what we see a lot in terms of just what the research shows is we have a lot of people now on Suboxone. For yeah, I don't know about how I feel. Like, I think that's great as a short-term thing, but yeah. in terms of long-term, I'm kind of like, hmm. Yeah, but a lot of what we're seeing now is a trend towards a lot of people that are on that. Um, we're seeing a high incidence of marijuana and alcohol use slash abuse with those with that particular. Area. I'm not
0: surprised. I yeah. have a sponsor who was on Suboxone. And I was like, do you have a personality? Are you in there? Are you a zombie? Like she seemed real. She was nodding off in meetings. And I just was like, you know, I really, really want you to titrate off that within a year. I don't want you to think that you need that crutch to stay sober. I think for a short term, it's great. I think long term, it's, you know, that's my opinion. And I'm not a doctor and I'm not a psychiatrist or whatever, but Um, I think that for me, a big thing was realizing that I could tolerate my feelings. Like I didn't have to run away from my feelings. You could tolerate your feelings like a normal person. And yes, they're big and yes, they're painful. And you can get through them without picking up and realizing that, you know, the urge will come and you still don't have to get loaded. Like the urge is going to come and you can wait 20 minutes and it passes whether you use or not. But if you use, then you open up that vortex and then you're on a bender and it's a nightmare. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, that was a big thing was just also just re sort of assigning myself an identity of of I'm not broken. I thought it was eternally broken. And um, I mean, I'm not a big one for anonymity. And it's like I am in 12 step program. I'm in AA, and it's like. You know, I really the steps really helped me more than therapy. I got to see myself and who I really was. And um uh I changed. I changed a lot of characteristics that were, you know, when you change yourself, everything changes. So I had felt trapped by myself in my life, and then when I did some uh some some program work and sort of really worked on behaving differently, you know, fake it till you make it. And realizing also that like, you know, I was waiting for the feelings to change before I took action. And that's the wrong way around. You take the action and that changes the feeling.
2: Oh, that is so, so profound. The more I think about that, I mean just that just totally like resonated with me. I'm like, yeah. I, I hear so many people, you know, say that one more time because I think you, like that is so important. Like it's so simple, but yet it's it's so deep and so You can be so successful.
0: It's so hard for addicts because we're so pulled around by our emotions and our emotions. And we we think we are our emotions and our emotions are true and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, so I was waiting for my feelings to change before I took the action.
2: Waiting for your feelings to change. Yeah. Before you take the action. Before I
0: took the action. You know what I mean? I didn't feel ready. I didn't whatever. And it's like, you will wait forever. You take the action and that changes your feeling, oh. and that's the way the brain works. You can change your feelings through action, and it's like you know that's that was a huge thing. I mean, you know, my father used to say to me, "This what did he say? Uh, stability doesn't create discipline. Discipline creates stability." And that's the same idea of like me waiting to feel okay to do anything. And it's like, it's the doing of things and having a routine and having a structured life and making yourself go to the gym and go to meetings and do your job and write or whatever that creates the feeling of self-esteem and stability.
2: (laughs) Did you, you got to write on this. This is like, so I I haven't really heard it packaged in this way, but Mm -hmm. it is such a good package for anybody because I can just see it because You're waiting for your feelings to change. Then I'll go to a meeting. So I'm going to sit around and wait and wait.
0: Good luck with that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I've had sponsors who just said, like, I don't care how you feel. You know, I don't care. And I mean, I had a sponsor who once said, you don't have to be a good person. You just have to act like one. No one knows the difference. And I was like. You know, because as addicts, we're very into our truth. Like, this is how I feel in my truth. No one cares about your truth. No one cares about your intentions. Action is character. The more you act a certain way, you become that way. You change your neural pathways. You know, now I am someone who's responsible, who's on time, who people people can rely on, who, you know, and I've created a life that's worth staying sober for. And that's a huge thing. And it's like. I mean, I think meditation helps with that, too, although I stopped doing it because it made me feel too good, which is so alcoholic, right? It's like, oh, this makes me feel great. I'm going to (laughs) stop. But what (laughs) – so alcoholic. Oh, my God. Um, What meditation can give you is a sense of yourself separate from your thoughts and your feelings because I always thought I was my thoughts and my feelings. And so you get to sit there and you have a sense of yourself and you see these thoughts going by like leaves on a river and go, oh, that's interesting. And you don't have to jump on every thought or feeling. I mean you have 40,000 thoughts a day. So it's like you get to decide you know, whether you want to get on that thought or feeling and go on that ride wherever it's going to take you. Or you can just wait for it to pass, which it will pass. So that's been the big thing It's like I really think that – It's cognitive behavioral therapy. It's acting yourself into right thinking. And however you want to do that, I mean, I happen to do, you know, program, but like however you get sober is great, but that's what I
2: needed. Yeah. Yeah, that totally. So this morning I wasn't too far off from in my own life. So not being in recovery, but getting up, feeling a little bit under the weather, Mm -hmm. having exercised in a while. I'd rather just skip it. So I get on the bike, exercise for like 30 minutes, not happening, kind of like it's not happening. I got to get off this thing. And then I decided to volunteer for my uh, little guy's uh, third grade class to help the teacher out. So I was thinking about I was like, I, I think I'm going to cancel because I can always do it next week. All right. You know, just do it next week. I'll feel better. When I feel better, I'll do it. There you go. There you go. So I end up going. And I had a great experience, and it actually okay. shifted my mood. there you go <laughs> so exactly. so like it's like so even though like we're talking about like recovery, how good this is, I think this is actually good for just anybody
0: it is, and it's really hard because when you're in it, you just don't want to do it and like especially when you have depression and I have depression, you know I, I've struggled with depression, and there's times I can do it, and there's times where I'm like, you know what like my bed is calling to me. <laughs> like I'm going to just curl up in a ball with my cat, Colonel Puff Puff, and just sleep this off. And sometimes, you know, that's okay. Like, you know, you just, you can unplug and replug, like, you know. But a lot of times I found that, like, you know, whatever I dreaded doing, I, you know, it's like going to a party. are like, oh, God, I don't want to go to this party. Oh. And then you go, and you're like, oh, my God, it was so much fun. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> always. <laughs> always even with the gym you're like oh I don't want to go to the gym and you feel after, you're like I feel so great
2: Yeah, I'm totally pumped like, up for this day yeah, I can't believe I'm good like I every day. it's like <laughs> you know
0: our brain plays you know tricks on us and we're really dictated by our moods and it's like you know if you're dictated by your emotions you're just going to be pulled by you know a leash in different directions every day and that's sort of what happened to me until my 40s I just wasn't creating anything I wasn't doing anything my whole life was dictated on the mood I was in. And I finally was like, this isn't working. And that's what I learned in community labor. Like, I don't know that the criminal system is for everyone. And it's certainly not what I had hoped was going to be my turning point. But, you know, I had to do that 240 hours of community labor. And there was no, or I was going to go to jail. And there's no stopping, like you're sweeping leaves and bum poo and people are ignoring you and you're a criminal. And, you know, it taught me a work ethic.
2: It taught me how to show up and do it no matter how I felt. Wow. So so you didn't plan it out when you were like 12 or 13 years old saying my transformational life will be (laughs) in my 40s when I'm on a work crew in the hot sun. (laughs) Well, this is like good. I actually got a comedian to laugh. <laughs> yeah, that
0: was not on my, you know, on my list when I was you know, growing up in Bel Air. I wasn't like, you know what? I'd love to be on a chain gang one day. That <laughs> like, would make my parents so proud. Like, like your bucket <laughs> right? list.
2: Like so, the kind of things you want to do by the time
0: you die. But, you know, it was the best thing that ever happened yeah, to me. And yeah. But I also decided it would be. That's that. That was really a moment where I was like, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You're creating this. This is the result of your actions. You know, like, hey, man, like you like there's a pattern following you and it's you (laughs) like you need to really do things differently. Because, I mean, I was really getting it couldn't gotten much lower. Like when you're in a sober living for two and a half years in your 40s on medical disability, sweeping the streets like
2: that's pretty bad. Yeah. Wow, an amazing journey though to come back. I, I just can't. As we as we kind of talk, I'm I'm really like thinking of because I think of I, I probably work with. I, I was on a podcast actually interviewed on a podcast like a, a couple of years ago, and they they said Ted, hey, how many people do you think you probably worked with the last like 20 years? So we like kind of calculated it, you know, as best we could on air, and it probably came out to like probably like 20,000 people. I've sat in a room with like 20,000 people with addictions. And what's amazing about how you're resonating with me right now is this awesome piece of accountability. Like, like quit blaming it on everybody else. Quit blaming it on your emotions or this or that. But like, Hey, you got to, you're in control of it. You're in control of it.
0: Well, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter whether, you know, you got beaten and like, you know it's genetics and it's da da da. it's your problem now to fix no matter if it's your fault if you created it or not like you have to fix it you know and i think that you know i had to get to the place where people were done with me you know my dad was like you've drained me emotionally and financially for years i'm over it i'm over the fi- i'm over the roller coaster call me when you have good news or don't call me
2: he I know this is a total side note, but I was just in a conversation with a family just the other a couple of days ago, and they had, this guy's like 21 years old, and, and um, the mom and dad had bailed them out just like for the last three or four years because they just didn't want to see him end up in jail and, and have bad things happen to him. And you're kind of touching on this kind of area, but what would be your advice, having been on the other side of it, um to parents out there who are think you know they're going through this with oh, the child
0: such a, such a difficult. I mean cuz my parents never abandoned me you have to understand you know what I mean like he paid my sober living rent you know i mean finally you know when i sort of sold my book he's like okay you know i'm cutting the cord you're on your own And it was like, you know, wait, I'm only 43. You know, know, it was like, what do you mean no more money? It was like, you know, I think that's a big part of addiction is like being the eternal child that you want. You know what I mean? You don't want to grow up. You don't want responsibility. You don't want consequences. You don't. But it's like, you know, my parents bailed me out a lot. And I mean, he never pulled total financial stuff from me. Um, my mom was more empathetic because she's in recovery herself. Um, but they were always there for, I mean, this is what you're talking, 20 years of relapsing, six rehabs, four psych wards. You know what I mean every type of alternative therapy. I mean, I've had shamans, exorcisms, homeopathy. I mean, like I tried every way to get sober beside program because I didn't like it. It creeped me out. Mm. It totally creeped me out. I was introduced at 24 and I was like, no way, you know, I'm a Jew. I don't like all that weird Christian stuff that's in there. But you know, what I finally realized too, is that you take what works for you and throw away the rest. There's some really good cognitive behavioral tools in there that, you know, have been pulled from psychology and different religions. And it's like, you know, there's something good there and you don't have to, you know, believe in all the prayers or God or any of that stuff, you know, you So, um, and I saw it working for people and I thought, okay. And it was sort of like, it's the go-to, you know, at most rehabs also, there's, they don't offer you really smart recovery or refuge recovery or, you know, harm reduction. It's not really offered. Yeah.
2: So what would you say? So your parents stood by your side for 20 years and they had him with you
0: together. They said they always knew. I didn't think I'd get it together. I thought I was going to die an
2: addict. Hmm. So you just, your. Yeah, you know, I'm just kind of thinking of like the parents' end of things. So them believing that you will eventually get over this was important, but then also probably laying down like some like consequences or like cutting you off, kind of thing from the money was another it, part of it, or it,
0: yeah. But it's like they were afraid. I mean, they, you know, he threatened to cut me off once. And he was drug testing me, and it just didn't really work. It doesn't work. It has to come from inside of you. You know, it's like. I mean, I, I needed them to believe in me because I hated myself and I didn't believe in myself anymore. And my father, you know, my mother believed I'd get it together because she'd gotten it together. She'd gotten sober around 39. She was an alcoholic and an amphetamine addict. And my father being a writer was just like, this is just too trite. To be true. It's like, this is a a bad movie. He's like, this can't be real. It's so, you know, classic and overdone. This cannot. And also ego. He's like, you're my kid. You're going to get it together. I mean, truly, that was his belief. And they were right. They were right. And now they're like, wow, you wrote this book that's helping people. And like, now it all makes sense. I think a big part too was for me to uh, get out of myself. I'd always was like, "How can you fix me? You fill me," and being of service in whatever way gets you out of yourself, makes you feel valuable, gives you a helper's high. And in the book, I became a nanny to the um, house manager's baby, and it changed me. It completely changed me, you know. And I also had an experience working with a quadriplegic person in my 20 uh, at 24. And that also changed me. And so I think, you know, it's so difficult for us to look outward and not be all self obsessed and taking our, uh, you know, emotional temperature all the time. How do I feel now? How do I feel right now? And how do I feel now? You
2: know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, what's the average day? What what does an average day now look like for you in the life? Well, I'm a
0: writer, so it's like, looks very much like house arrest.
2: You locked to <laughs> the computer? Are you chained to the computer?
0: <laughs> Pretty much. Um, <laughs> I'm doing a lot of promotion for the book. Uh, I moonlight as an editor for a science based relationship column. I still freelance for The Fix a lot. Um, uh, yeah. It's like, talking about the gym. I don't even know where the gym is anymore. I stopped going to the gym when I started writing my book, and now it's like, my body's like, what's the gym? You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, just, it's a typical day. I go to meetings, I check in with my sponsor, I talk to my sponsees, I talk to my friends. Um, it's been a really heavy promotional time. Like I said, I have this, this day job three days a week. Um, we're negotiating a possible TV series based on the book, which is super exciting. Um, that's really it. I mean, you know, it's like... I haven't really been socializing much. I've been... Uh, it's kind of work and work and work and program okay. and work, which is funny because for, you know, my whole life, I didn't do anything.
2: And now you're on the other end.
0: Yeah, I I was fired from every job I ever had. I used to just, you know, sit around my apartment and get my trust fund money and, you know, shoot cocaine, you know, it's like and now it's like it's just back to back, you know. Like you're probably the big human interaction I'm gonna have today. (laughs) Yes. Podcasts. It's like (laughs) me, like me and podcasts, and it's like you know, and also people being touched by the book. I write back to everyone. People are blown away by the book because, and it's so, it's it means the world to me to take 20 years of pain and struggle and humiliation and degradation and turn it into something that helps people. And
2: inspires
0: people is so mind blowing.
2: Yeah, amazing. It's it's actually amazing, Amy. You no. Know. So, what do you think has been like your brightest moment this year, or one of? Oh, a- that's the publication of the book.
0: I mean, that was like very very exciting for me. It felt like a huge accomplishment. Um, you know, I had a reading at Book Soup and my friends came and blah blah. But you know what's interesting? You always think that something outside of you is going to fill that internal hole. As an addict, you're like, I'm like, I'm going to have a book published, and then I'm, then I'm going to feel, you know, complete. And it doesn't work that way.
2: So does recovery cure all, and even long-term recovery cure all? Does that mean that you'll never encounter a dip in the road or be tempted to get off on the next using off-ramp? Probably not. You see, you can have those same using thoughts and feelings that you had three months into recovery, five and even ten years later. You can still have those cravings come back to you for that one last hurrah or rationalize it out one last time. But it does not mean you have to. You see, you have the power to keep driving the car, to load the car with sober friends, and to be able to sit with your feelings and thoughts and realize that you can drive past that using off-ramp. And that those using thoughts and feelings will just disappear with time.
0: Nothing from the outside is going to fill that hole. And that was a kind of a rude awakening. I was, I was convinced that the publication of the book was going to like make me feel whole.
1: Yeah. And it
0: gave me a purpose. It gave me a feeling of service. But it didn't fill it completely. And I was like, oh, it really is an inside job. Oh, God. You know?
2: Yeah. So how did you, cause this is like current stuff. So how did you navigate that territory where you were like looking forward to the book? It comes out. It's like, Oh yeah, I've done it. I'm whole again. And they're like, well, right. it was I was
0: depressed. I got very depressed and I've heard that, that, you
2: know, that that's not uncommon to, you
0: know, you're, you're concentrating on this book and it's released and writing and it's your whole world. And it's like postpartum depression. Yeah. Kind of thing. And I also went through a breakup um, in April uh, that really threw me, and most – I have a history of relapsing over romantic stuff, and I didn't relapse, partly because I just couldn't imagine like being – You know, like being on a podcast and, you know, them like, well, our author relapsed. She's going to Skype in from her eighth rehab. Amy, are you there? You know what I mean? I just couldn't do it to my publisher. I just couldn't do it to my parents. I mean, yeah, the pain was unbearable and it was so, but I just was like, okay, let's, we're going to feel our feelings. And it was really painful. I mean, my neighbors heard me wailing through the walls. I mean, heartbreak is brutal, but it's also a human thing that happens to everyone. I'm not special. I lost 15 pounds. I started smoking again and, you know, probably stocking Kleenex went up a lot. And, you know, I just
2: walked through it and it still comes in waves. I cried yesterday over it. Oh, I absolutely just love this, Amy. I mean, because like. So often, you know, we hear the upsides of recovery and that, you know, you kind of like set off into the great, you know, the great yonder and everything's all good. But here you, you became accountable, you reached you reached your rock bottom, you became accountable, you did all the things you needed to do to get in recovery and, and, and get back on track. And then you decide to take all this pain from 20 years, roll it into a book, which probably took a ton of work to do get excited about its release date, focus in on it, it gets released and then get depressed and then endure a relationship breakup. And then almost like, I I like that you talked about like, hey, I just cried yesterday or, you know, a month ago, I cried over like losing this relationship. And that's always been hard for me. Because I think ultimately, like, life is kind of up It has its ups and downs.
0: Yeah. My mom broke her hip. She's in a skilled nursing facility. That's super – She, you know, she was on oxycodone. I went to visit her. It was super triggering. You know, I also used a lot of drugs in Santa Fe. Santa Fe has a huge – I know you think – I'm sure you know New Mexico has a huge drug problem, and overdose problem. But I went to be of service to her and um, life's in session. You know, you get sober and it's not like – I mean – there's definitely magical things that have happened and I've cre- and I've done be, been able to do things that I only dreamt of. But also life's in session. You're not immune. You don't get this perfectly charmed life. You know, when people go, like, I have a life beyond my wildest dreams. I just want to punch those people in the face. I was like, oh, be quiet. But it's like in some ways I really do. At one point when I had the boyfriend before my mom broke her hip, the book was coming out. I did feel that way. I'd become exactly who I always hated. You know, that's the thing in sobriety. You get to become the person you've always made fun of. You know, the person who used to smoke meth and now is gluten free. You know, that irritating person. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh my God. And it's like yoga, eye roll. And it's like, now I do all that hippy dippy crap.
2: How come but, you're still not doing stand up? That's what I want to know. I mean, I've never laughed as much doing a podcast.
0: Um. Well, you know. I was doing stand-up, and a lot of it was based around my ex-husband. And when you get arrested, lose your mind, (laughs) relapse, you know, I just – I had to focus on getting my life together. Yeah. And going through a really brutal divorce and a terrifying criminal case – and, um, I had no money and I got, I got scholarship to a rehab, but I told you, I tried to kill myself and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I wasn't, and then I was in sober living for two and a half years and I just, I was too intent. I was just too focused on my survival financially to like, be like, I got to go do a set at the comedy store at 1130. Like I just wasn't there. And a lot of it wasn't that funny yet. Yeah. And, um, Also, I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't, I didn't miss it. I still don't miss it. And I did, I did it for, you know, five years. I got the tour. It was cool. Um, I don't really need that validation anymore. I'm sort of more socially shy than I realized, you know, when you get sober, you're like, Oh, I like to, you know, I'm like kind of like a house kitty. Like I like to be inside and I don't, I hate parties and I was never a party girl, but the other thing too is stand-up is very about being broken. It's not you know, there's nothing funny about being happy or having your life together. So my stand-up was very much about how crazy I was and oh. how broken I was and how what a you know terrible wife I was and what a drug addict I was. And I really felt like I needed, you know, there's nothing funny about like, you know, my life's amazing, you know, uh, you know, and people are like, ha! <laughs> You know, it's like, you know, it's always like I live in, you know, a room with like five other dudes and, you know, my life's going great. You know, it's like it's always depressing stuff. And I felt like I needed to completely recast the way I looked
2: at myself. Man, that makes like so much sense to me. Like I was watching some of these YouTube videos this morning of your uh, stand up and then you just describing it the way you just so eloquently described it. It totally makes sense to me now why you're not doing stand-up.
0: Yeah, I was like – I and you know, and I mean it's so great. I get to be – she recovers. I get to speak. I get to be funny, but I get to deliver a message too, and how yeah. great is that? Yeah, that's it's awesome. That's like the best of both worlds where you can use your – but humor is important. Humor was a huge part of me getting sober. Like when I was doing the chain gang stuff, I was chronically good on Facebook as posts. Like everyone else was hiding it. And I was like, look what I found on the chain gang today, guys. And taking a picture or like, I got to learn Spanish ASAP or whatever, like whatever. Like, wow, there are a lot of condoms east of La Brea, guys, just FYI, like whatever it was. And people were dying laughing because, you know, I owned it. I refused to feel ashamed about it. And it's like I had to see the humor to get through it. And the popularity of those posts regarding the chain gang is what gave me the idea For the framework of the book, which is a chain gang, and then seeing things, and they create flashbacks, like seeing a syringe, and then I flash back the first time I shot up,
2: you know that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, My cat just decided to join us. Oh, cool! (laughs) I I love kitties. He's down here. (laughs) Can you see him? Oh, what a cutie! Maybe, maybe this should be like the podcast. We'll just you. splat the cat. Have you seen
0: my Instagram—it's all pictures of my cat. Everyone's like, um, um you're like you really need a more, like a a PR person. Like your Instagram—you're like pretty good looking. Like your 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 thing is all Colonel Puff Puff. I'm like,
2: oh god, here, hold on for one second. He's going to meow. You actually figure out how to get in. Totally something you're not supposed to do on a podcast, but hey, we'll do it.
0: I think so. I think for, you know, like with the people you work with, it's like you can change. You can absolutely become a different person. You're not stuck with who you are. You're not your past. You're not a bad person. You know, you've got to really just chuck shame out the window, you know, and just go, hey, I did the best I could with the tools I had at the time, and that's it. And change is hard, but it's totally possible.
2: So what does a woman named Amy, comedy, cocaine bicycle helmet, booze, drugs, and sex have in common with the words, new purpose, honesty, community, hope, and the power of laughter? I'll give you the short answer amazing woman in recovery. It was like you're on an, like an evolution, like, but you embraced where you were in the moment and took responsibility and accountability, stopped making up the excuses, but that didn't necessarily lead you to the promised land, like right then and there. No
1: way! It took,
2: it took a little time, but you,
1: yeah. you still,
2: you know... You fell off the horse, got back up on the horse, fell off the horse, got back on the horse. Oh, for 20
0: years I've been doing that. Yeah, yeah, you can't give up. And it's like, I think that's a big thing is like letting your ego go. And also just because, like how many light bulbs, it's so stupid, it's such a cheesy example, but like how many light bulbs did Edison make that did not work before he made the one that worked? Like, you know, you just don't know when it's going to click. And I just, I didn't really you know, I was the retread. Everyone thought I was crazy. It was like, I was the chronic relapser. I just didn't care what people thought. I was like, I'm not interested. I'm here to save my life. I'm not interested in being queen of the drunks. Like who cares? Yeah. You know, I didn't get caught up in that game of hi- that hierarchy and that ego and all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, there's something else in the book and you know, it's embarrassing enough to be a female perpetrator of domestic violence. Like that is in itself is super rare. And I'm like, 115 pounds, like I'm tiny, you know, but during this recovery in the early days, I became a sex addict because, and I think that that's all part of alcoholism, which is like, how do I get out of my feelings? You know, how do I check out? How do I get dopamine? And that was something I chronicled in the book. And it was really, really difficult to write about and uh, very mortifying, but you'd be surprised how many women have contacted me and been like, oh, my God, thank
2: you for talking about that. Um, oh, that's awesome. Just hearing other people connect with it. What do you think, because um, I've seen some of this happen just in, in the recovery centers I've worked at, is that venturing into almost like the sex addiction part becomes almost like a next step at times or sometimes oh, at the completely. same step. Oh,
0: Well, because you're taking a bunch of people, what are they going to pick up? They're looking for their next fix, right? So, you know, they want to stay clean and sober. So it's like nicotine, caffeine, eating, gambling, and sex.
2: That's like the next, sort of like the next yeah. potential stops to jump off the train. You
0: know, yeah. And it's like, you know, I mean, I went through it until I bottomed out and it became really humiliating and gnarly and dark in a completely different way than, you know, my drug use. And then it stopped working and I put it down and, you know, I fell in love and then, you know, I got my heart broken, but I haven't gone back to that.
2: I just want to say... A sincere thanks, Amy, for talking about a lot of things people don't want to talk about and just making it okay to, like, make mistakes and talk about the shame, you know, the humiliation, just to be able to say, like, wait a second, that happens, and I'm still standing.
0: Yeah, like that Elton John song, I'm still standing, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, you just, you know, my father's like, you're unbreakable. It's like, I mean, I'm pretty resilient. I'm not really sure why I'm still kind of here or alive, but um, I think that's the whole thing is like, you just got to dust yourself off and be like, that was stupid, you know? And okay. And it's like, everyone has their own process. And I guess also like, we are very, as addicts, we're very sensitive and we're, we're, you know, we can fail spectacularly. We, we are really powerful <laughs> and manipulative. But if we can rein that power in for good, we can win every race. Like, that's been my experience. Like the, If you can take your compulsivity and your intensity and move it from drug addiction to your passion, wow, no one can compete with us.
2: Things could really take off. Yeah, I love that. Wow, I love really
0: that. Makes sense. Yeah. Wow.
2: Well, what do you think are the uh, key areas to promote change while in recovery? Like if you had to narrow it down, if I said, Amy, you got three things you can give advice to this person on. What would be the three key things to, if you're actively addicted or thinking about getting in recovery and you're not quite there, what do you think are the keys, the three big keys? And you can make them up if you don't know if if you don't have any oh, idea,
0: is, uh, is there a right answer that I should know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of just like totally making something random that doesn't even. You're like, Ted. That's not even related to recovery.
1: <laughs>
0: um, for me, when I was in my active addiction, what I needed hope, and I I I remember that um. My friends all thought I was going to die because I was shooting cocaine with epilepsy, which is super stupid, and, uh, and I would have a seizure. And instead of being like, hey, I shouldn't shoot cocaine, I actually shot cocaine wearing a bike helmet so I didn't crack my head open, which was my answer, which is like so classic addict. Like how do I get what I want and avoid the consequences? You know, you don't even think that's funny. You're just so
2: horrified. <laughs> no. You know where I went? In my mind, I was picturing – of you with the helmet on for some reason. Like I, I totally like lost the whole rest of this, which is ultimately the seriousness of it all. Like I'm cocaine, I'm having an epileptic seizure, Ted. And in my mind, I'm like thinking, I'm imagining you with this red helmet.
0: And it, yeah, it was my, my epileptic, my other epileptic friend gave it to me. He was in the program and it had a horrible, I hate the Grateful Dead, and it had a Grateful Dead sticker on it. But like, you know, I mean, it's in the book, you know, every time I get stressed out, before my seizures were really controlled with medication, I'd have, a, you know, I if I got really upset, I'd have a seizure. You know, my mother used to be like, honey, you sound very upset. Would you please put your helmet on? Like, for real, you know? Oh. So, anyway, my friend got someone else who had, I guess she had three years sober. Um, she had had a stroke, smoking crack. She was in her 20s. Her parents had bought a grave plot. They were so convinced she was going to die. And they said my friend said, will you just talk to this girl? And I was high when I talked to her, but I heard myself and I heard that she was as bad as me and that she got better. And she was like, come meet me at a meeting. And I agreed. Um, so I think connection is super important to not feel like you're alone. You're not alone in this. There's so many of us out there that have this And it's like I think the loneliness is such a core was such a core part of my addiction, feeling lonely and different and displaced and not sort of knowing how to navigate in the world. And I think that despite how much I can be a loner, like community is so important. And that's what's cool about programs, you know, twelve step programs is the fellowship. I mean, yeah, there are not cool people. It's a microcosm in the real world, so there are great people and there are less great people. You know, but um, but having other people who get
2: you is amazing. It's super good. So we got hope and connection. And what's yeah. the, uh, the um, pearl of wisdom? I mean, these are powerful pearls. So, man, I mean, this is like great hope. for but the thanks. listeners.
0: What's my other thing? You know, getting a cat. I don't know. No. <laughs> yes. Uh, just, yeah, it's like, I'm trying to think. I mean, I think that being honest, like really, you know, you're not special. Getting honest, getting honest with somebody. Like I had, I saw, there was a psychiatrist that I saw in my 20s, and I was high the entire time I saw him. I used to snort Crystal in the bathroom before I would go see him, and he didn't even know. And I never told him. And it's like, no one can help you if you're not honest about what you're
2: doing. So it's kind of like, I I just love those, those magical three words of wisdom. I mean, it's so like simple, but like super tough to follow through on. But like, where else is it going to start? But like honesty.
0: Yeah. Tell, you know, if you relapse, be honest about it. Tell your counselor, whatever, like be honest. Don't tell them what you think that they want to hear be honest hey i want to use i mean that's the other thing too it's like you can stay sober even when you don't want to i have there's not i haven't been like i love being sober like every day of these 5 years there's been times where i was like oh my god i want to check out yeah. i still have using dreams and it's like you know knowing that you can have a feeling or an urge and you
2: don't have to act on that that's been the key too you know that is that is powerful cuz that is that builds probably confidence over time. Well, yeah,
0: and then you're like, oh, here it comes again, and I've gotten through the other one, and I can get through this one.
2: But if you cave every
0: time, then you never have the experience of getting through an urge or a really big emotion without using. You just don't have the experience that you're that resilient, and that it passes. That's the thing. We think, I feel this way. I'm going to feel this way forever, and that's just not true.
2: Everything passes, the good and the bad. You know, this is amazing from the from the standpoint that and I hear this so often, like zillions of times is like just a fear of I'm going to get triggered. I'm going to have a craving and then I'm going to go use it becomes like this like storyline or so the idea is like never have a craving. I never want to have one because I might right. go out and use. And really what you've done is you flip that upside yeah. down and said, actually, you actually can get through it and it's going to build confidence over time. Don't walk around afraid to experience it like to the nth degree, but like if you can successfully get through it, that's actually going to pave the way for confidence and success down the road.
0: Absolutely. And it's like, you know, the whole thing is like, you know, you can have a thought and you don't have to feel bad about it and you don't have to follow through on it. You can call someone. I totally want to use right now and be babysat or go to a meeting or have someone talk you down. You know, and like I said, you buy yourself 20 minutes, it passes, but you can't be like frightened of your thoughts. You're going to be triggered. You're going to want to use. That's where addicts, that's our nature is to check out. So it's like, you know, being able to like, you know, accept that, not feel shame about it, not feel guilt, not feel like they're not working a perfect program. I had a dream about smoking crack like three nights ago, you know, and it's like, oh, that's interesting. You know, it kind of freaked me out a little bit, but I was like, okay, You know, so it's like, yeah, you can't be afraid of life. You're going to be in life. You're going to get triggered. Someone's going to have a drink. Someone's, you know, and also you can remove yourself from the situation. That's the other thing is being more self-protective. It's like, you know, you know, protect me from what I want. We're, you know, very attracted to things that aren't good for us as addicts. Well, I want what I want. It's like you know. At some point, you need to become your own parent and go. That's great, but that's not good for you. That guy, that whatever, and not and not go there. It's taken me a very long time to do that.
2: Well, well said, well said, and very powerful. I must say. I mean, this is like great, great words of wisdom, and you're just so honest and upfront about it that I think that. I mean, even if you're not in recovery, you're here with us. It's like, like having a community of support, having hope that maybe you can be something and that something your life could turn out to be happy and and decent. And then, you know, what what was the third one? We had (laughs) – I even got sidetracked. So we had hope.
0: What was it?
2: Community and honesty.
0: You don't have an excuse. I've done a lot of drugs and oh, honesty. Oh, you remembered.
2: Okay. Yeah, you got to
0: be honest. I mean, believe me, you haven't done anything that no everyone that someone's gonna go. Oh. You know, everyone's had those feelings. Everyone's done that stuff. No one's a saint. Like, who cares? Like that. Just let that go. You know, screw shame. It's like whatever. You're not your past. You're not what you've done.
2: I love that.
0: I love that. I mean, that's, I dedicated my book to anybody who thinks it's too late.
2: Very well said. Very well said. Well, we're going to begin to kind of wrap things up. Anything else uh, you want to say? I I have this uh, speed round or lightning round. I call it where I ask you five random questions and you just respond. Jesus Jesus Christ. Okay. Go. Well,
0: Last time you had like the right answers, you were like, "If you don't know the answers, I'm like, oh my god, is this a test?" (laughs) Go hit me. All
2: right, all right. Most awkward scene on the comedy stage.
0: Oh God, when I talked about my suicide attempt on stage and nobody thought it was funny. People were horrified. Suicide is very hard to make funny. Very hard to
2: make funny. Brightest moment on the comedy stage. Like the best moment. They're not going to be easy. I think
0: just like, you know, I mean, honestly, just having a great set and having, making people laugh and like it's such a high. I mean, that also became quite an addictive high, but it's very fleeting, you know, and having people go, oh my god, you were great, you were funny, and blah blah. And also, I love doing conventions. I loved when we, I was on a recovery tour and talking to my peeps because they, I mean, to them, every all the dark stuff's funny, you know, all the dark stuff is funny. And so that's like, you know, a relief, you know, to talk about, you know, to to be with your people where they're like, that's hilarious, you had a seizure on a plane, like, you know, whatever, like, like they get. They get it. Yeah. Yes. And it, oh, you know, you screwed a stranger in the back seat of your car, you know, like awesome. Just after you left the slum eating, aha, you know, whatever.
2: Favorite <laughs> Where food.
0: People are just horrified. They're like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, they're like, you shot coke in your neck? Like, oh, my God. Or even pulling a knife, you know. Like, you know, I even say this to am like, I don't use knives now. I only use chopsticks. Everyone feels safer around me,
2: you know, it's so stupid. So stupid. <laughs> I love it. Favorite food. Sushi. Sushi. And yeah. Worst dish you ever had at a restaurant. Worst dish? Yeah. Good lord.
0: <laughs> I mean, okay. I had Israeli food. A couple like a week ago and um it was really good going down, but it let's just say it didn't sit that well. Sit <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was like, Oh, Israeli food, I'm half Jewish, this should be terrific. And my stomach was like, Oh girl, mm, I don't think so, you know.
2: <laughs> nice. Um, final question, are you ready? I'm ready. Um most profound moment in your recovery? I mean, there's probably several, but. There are several. One that comes to mind.
0: I mean, the one that really comes to mind is the moment where I had my epiphany sweeping the streets, to be honest with you, where I really decided, like I said, I was like, okay. You know, I mean, there's a Will Rogers quote in my book and it's like the worst thing that happens to you can be the best thing for you if you don't let it get the best of you. And me just really deciding like there are lessons here. This is my responsibility. I need to change everything. Who I am and how I approach life is not working. And I mean, other profound moments, like the notes I get from people re- regarding the book are so moving. People saying that I encourage them to go into treatment or thank you for your honesty and like you gave me hope or, you know, I mean, I just cry. I get these and I just I just sob. What a I mean, being of service is just like I mean, changing someone's life like that, you're just like. I mean, I to go from being a warning to being an example and some an inspiration is just so mind blowing. You
2: no. Know, yeah, that is that's that's, that's,
0: that's like thank that you for giving me the effort to you know save my own life. I mean that kind of stuff where you're just like, whoa. I mean, it's just like I just ball. I just ball, and I'm just so grateful, and I write to everyone, and it's just, it's incredibly moving. And I think that that's the big thing. It's like your past can be an incredible tool that helps other people. So don't be ashamed of it.
2: Well, with that, we salute you, Amy. Thank you for
1: coming on the show.
0: Thanks, Ted.
1: Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you so much to Amy Dresner for sharing her story and her time with us. Once again, her book, My Fair Junkie, A Memoir of Getting Dirty and Staying Clean, is available now. Check it out. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tool. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.